Good morning, Trinity family. My name is Nick Price, and I'm the site pastor at Trinity Kimberly Way. And it is my privilege to be able to journey with you through God's word this morning. And so I think it's only right that before we open God's word together, that we take a moment to allow him to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, this morning, we want to just give you thanks for the gift of technology that allows us to be together this morning. So that even though we are separated all over the Chicago area, all around the country, all around the world, you've given us this amazing opportunity to still be gathered around your word. And so as we open scripture together, Lord, we ask that you would also open our hearts and our minds to receive the message that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this weekend, we actually begin a seven-day journey together. It's a journey that we in the church call Holy Week. It's seven days in which we join Jesus from the moment that he enters into Jerusalem all the way through his trial and execution and ultimately to the empty tomb. And this Sunday in particular is a Sunday that many Christians have called Palm Sunday. And the reason why we call it Palm Sunday is really because of the passage that we're studying together this morning from Luke 19 where we find that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem and as he approaches the city, his disciples go ahead of him and they wave palm branches and shout Hosanna. They take their cloaks and they lay them on the road in front of him as he rides into the city. And the reason why they do that is because in the ancient world, this is how you would greet a coming king. And the reason this is so important for us to understand is because what Luke is saying and what he wants us to understand as we're studying this passage is he wants us to understand that the only way to truly know who Jesus is, to be able to understand him, but also to have a relationship with him is when we come to see him as king. You see, there are many different uh, images that we have in our culture today of who Jesus is. And I think we all kind of have our own uh, personal preference. We have buddy Jesus, where Jesus is primarily our friend. Others of us like to think of Jesus as our own spiritual guide or guru or mentor. Others of us really like the soft and cuddly Jesus who snuggles with lambs and kisses babies on the forehead. Others of us love the revolutionary Jesus, the one who wants to stick it to the man and overturns tables in the temple. Now, each one of these images of Jesus, yeah, it kind of points to something that he did or said in his life and in his ministry. But one of the things that we have to understand as modern people is that the earliest confession of the Christian church was that Jesus is Lord. And that was a title that had a very specific meaning in ancient times. That title of Lord was one that was reserved only for royalty, It was a title that in Jesus' day was given to the emperor in Rome. And what they were doing when they were proclaiming that Jesus is Lord is they're saying that he's not just a king, he is the king. He is the ruler over everything. And that then raises a question for us. And the question is this, so what kind of king is Jesus? And this morning, as we're looking at Luke 19 together, what we're going to see is we're going to see three things about Jesus as king. The first is that Jesus is the true king. The second is that he is the humble king. And the third is that he is the compassionate king. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to join me as we take a look at Luke chapter 19 together. 
Because what we find there is that uh, when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, it says that the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You see, right here, what we're learning about Jesus as king is that Jesus is the true king. You see, what they're quoting from is they're actually quoting from a very ancient song. It's a song that we find in Psalm 118, where it speaks about how God is a faithful God who watches over and protects his people with loving kindness and mercy and grace. That line, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is lifted right from this song. But one of the things that's interesting is what the disciples insert into their own recitation of the song. Rather than simply saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the reason they do that is because for ancient Jewish people, there was an expectation that the one who was to come would be a king, would come from the line of King David, and that he would be a king unlike any other king. He would be a king who actually restores God's rule and reign to all of creation. That he would be the perfect king, the ultimate king who would make all things new, who would restore the world to the way it was always supposed to be. What they're proclaiming is that Jesus is the true king, the ultimate king. And you see, this is an expectation that yes, people in Jesus' day had, but I would argue that actually this is an expectation that we as human beings have. I find it interesting that when you look at all of the uh, fairy tales and stories that we tell over and over again, this idea that there's one day going to come a king or a ruler or a leader who's going to make everything right is something that is so pervasive and cross-cultural. Everything from the stories of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table right up to the Lord of the Rings and the Return of the King, we as human beings have this fascination with leaders, with rulers, with with those who are going to come and make things right. Even here in America, where we don't even have royalty, we can't seem to get enough of stories about princes and princesses, kings and queens. They are some of the top-selling books. They are some of the top-selling movies. And even on Netflix, one of their number one shows is The Crown, which is all about the British royal family. Why is that? I think it's because we long for the day when the true king will come. And whether we do that with stories and fantasy literature or shows on Netflix or whether we actually do it with some of our pop icons, the reality is is that even when we don't have royalty, we make royalty for ourselves. We enshrine leaders of business, musicians, athletes, and politicians as the rulers who are going to fix everything and make everything right. And if you were wondering how it was I was going to get Steve Jobs, T.I., LeBron James, and Donald Trump all on the same slide, that's how. Because the reality is, is no matter what your political persuasion or your cultural background, we all have idols that we look up to. People that we look to and we say, man, that person really has it all together. If I could just be like that person or follow that person, they're the type of person who can fix what's wrong in our world. We have this longing in our hearts to see a ruler come someday who's going to make everything right. The problem is is that often this instinct doesn't serve us very well. 
You see, what I find interesting is that with every new election, all those high hopes just seem to end up being dashed as someone's administration continues on, right? I find it fascinating that when you look at revolutions around the world, that yesterday's revolutionary is today's dictator. You see, we desire to have a king, someone who's going to sit on the throne and make everything right. And yet oftentimes we are disappointed in the kings and the rulers, the pop icons and the leaders of our day because we find out they're just flawed people just like us. And oftentimes those we emulate say a lot more about us than they have to say about themselves. That those that we emulate reveal the condition of our heart and they, can, they reveal what values truly reign on the throne of our soul. And so right here, what, what's being proclaimed is that Jesus is the king who alone can make all that right. And that if we're looking to other rulers with other agendas to try and fix things for us, we're looking in the wrong place. Which kind of leads us to a question. The question is this, what sits enthroned on your heart? Because what Jesus wants us to understand is that he alone can fulfill those deepest longings. He alone is the true king who can make all things new. But what's interesting is the second thing we learn about Jesus in this passage, and that is that Jesus is the humble king. See, one of the details that I find so interesting in this text is what it says um, a little bit earlier on, before Jesus really starts to ride into the city. He tells his disciples to go and find a colt, a young animal upon which no one else has ridden and to bring it to him. And that's what he ends up riding into the city. And what's so fascinating about that is the fact that the other gospels highlight that it's not just a colt like a horse. It's actually the colt of a donkey. So basically what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I'm going to ride into Jerusalem as king on a baby donkey. Now, certainly there's an Old Testament prophecy uh, from Zechariah, which talks about how the coming king is going to ride into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. And, and certainly Jesus here is fulfilling that prophecy. But I have to imagine that there were some of his disciples that at the same time were kind of disappointed. Because you see what they wanted, it was a ruler who was going to ride into Jerusalem on a war horse. Uh, a ruler who was going to come in power and authority, a ruler who was going to come and liberate them from their oppressors, the Roman Empire that ruled over not just Jerusalem and Judea, but the entire Mediterranean world. And yet here's the guy that they put all their hopes in, and he kind of comes riding into the city, not on a horse, but on a baby donkey. And I have to imagine that there's some people who actually laughed at that, who saw that as comical, saying this isn't, this isn't the kind of ride that a king should be in. This is like the ride that like a hobbit would take. It's just so, so goofy, so strange, so comical. So, so why would Jesus do that? I think it's because Jesus is making a statement about the kind of king that he is. What he's saying is that he's the humble king, the gentle king, the king who comes not to lord it over us or to oppress us, but rather a king who comes to serve us and to set us free. He's making a powerful statement that flies in the face of many of the expectations of the people of his day. He's going to be some sort of strong man who's just going to take it uh, to our enemies and kick them out and, and give us health and wealth and prosperity and success and security. Jesus is saying, no, I'm, I'm the king who comes to serve everyone from the lowest to the highest. 
And you see, that's one of the things that I find so beautiful about Jesus is the kind of king that he is. He's a king, a ruler, a leader, unlike anything else we've ever seen. A truly humble and gentle leader who, though he has incredible power and authority, wields it with amazing gentleness. And this is something that, that has captivated people around the world. See, a couple of years ago, I read this book by Pat Lencioni, the great business uh, consultant. He wrote this book called The Ideal Team Player. And one of the things that he notes when he talks about somebody who's an ideal team player is he says that really ideal team players have three virtues, that they're humble, hungry, and smart. And what he means by hungry and smart, he means that they're, they're hungry to see the organization succeed, not themselves, and smart in terms of people smarts. And he kind of walks through the book and he talks about how this is what makes for like the best kind of team player. This is what makes for the best corporate teams. This is what makes for even the best leaders in organizations. But when you get to the end of his book, the last two pages, he says something that I think is truly amazing. Here's what he writes. He says, I must admit that apart from the other two virtues, humility stands alone. It is indeed the greatest of all virtues and the antithesis of pride. The most compelling example of humility in the history of mankind can be found in Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. He attracted people of all kinds when he walked the earth and continues to do so today, providing an example of humility that is as powerful as it is cross-cultural. And so it is my hope that the readers of this book will take something else away with them and apply it in their lives. An appreciation for the true gift that it is to be humble and the divine origins of that virtue. Think about that for a second. This guy who has consulted leaders of Fortune 500 companies says that humility is something that can only be given by the one who is himself humility. That it can only be given by the one who not only models for us, but makes it possible for us to become truly servant-minded leaders. It's only a gift that we receive in Jesus. That's the claim that he's making. And that's why I think it's so easy then to come to Jesus and to trust him as king. Because we know that whatever he calls us to, whatever he commands is for our good. It's for our benefit. It's meant to help us, to help us to succeed and, and, and to help us to grow and have new life. What Jesus is saying is, I don't come to lord it over you. I come to set you free and to give you new life. Which leads us to another question. And that question is simply this. What fears are holding you back from trusting in Jesus as your king? Because what Jesus wants to say is that you have no need to fear him. It says elsewhere in scripture that Jesus is love. And that perfect love casts out fear. Jesus, as our humble king, comes to do just that. Yes, to meet the desires of our heart and to help us to know that we can truly trust him. That brings us to the third thing that we learn about Jesus from this text. And that is that he is the compassionate king. Because something really interesting happens as Jesus gets closer and closer to the city. Here's what Luke writes. He says that when Jesus drew near, And saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. What is Jesus talking about there? What's the cause of his weeping and his tears? Some people have said, well, he's he's sad because he knows that the people are going to reject him. And while, yeah, that certainly is true, and elsewhere Jesus does grieve over that, what he's grieving over here is the fate of those who don't turn to him. What he's referencing and what he's pointing ahead to is what ultimately actually happens to the city of Jerusalem in AD 70, when the Romans come and they tear the city down, where they don't leave one stone upon another, but they conquer it and smash it to dust. See, the reason Jesus weeps is because he knows that his people's addiction to political power, to political success, to warfare against their enemies will only lead to their own destruction. And his desire as king is to come and to save them from that. And the reality is, is that's the kind of compassion that Jesus has. He's willing to go through anything in order to rescue us from the ways in which our selfish pursuits are ultimately going to lead to our destruction. He weeps because his deepest desire is that we would come to know him as king, the one who is gracious and humble, the one who is compassionate and desires to forgive us. Because the reality is, is that we all reject Jesus in favor of something else. In 2005, uh, the great and noted author, David Foster Wallace, actually gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College. And Foster Wallace, you know, was was an agnostic. He was not a Christian. Yet he said something in that commencement speech, which I think speaks directly to what we're talking about here in Luke 19. This is what he he said. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the four noble truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Foster Wallace goes on to talk about these various things that we tend to enshrine. He says, you know, if you worship money and things, if that's where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you're going to need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. If you worship your intellect being seen as smart, you're going to end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But he ends that section saying this. He says, but what's so insidious about all these things is that these are our default settings. You see, every single one of us worships something. Every single one of us has something on the throne of our hearts that left unchecked will lead to our destruction. And yet Jesus comes and says, I want to rescue you from that. Those deepest desires of your heart, those are the things that I desire to give to you. I want to give you that love and that acceptance that you so long for. I want to give you that hope and that security that you're trying to grasp and cling on to. The very heart of it, that's what compassion is all about, is to understand the deepest longings of our heart, to suffer along with us and to desire to alleviate them. 
But if you were to type compassion into the dictionary, what you find is that compassion is defined as a sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. But what's so amazing about Jesus is that he doesn't just come to suffer with us. He comes to suffer for us. He doesn't just have a desire to alleviate our suffering, but he actually has the ability to bring true freedom and true healing. See, Jesus ultimately suffers what rebels suffer. When he goes into Jerusalem, he comes face to face with the Roman power and the ruling authorities. And he takes upon his own shoulders the punishment which should be ours. He dies in our place a rebel's death in order that we might be forgiven. Not just in the eyes of some worldly power, but be forgiven before God, our Father, restored to right relationship with him and able to walk with him in the kingdom that he is bringing into the world. Several years ago, I heard an amazing sermon by Pastor Tim Keller, and this is what he said about the kind of change and transformation that Jesus desires to bring. He said, look, if the problem with people is that we're alienated from ourselves, then what we need is more psychologists. If the problem with our world is that there are economic inequalities, then what we need are better economists. If the problem with the society is that we have a broken legal system, then we simply need more lawyers and better judges. But if the problem with the human heart is that we are separated from God, trapped in a spiritual darkness and wickedness of our own making, and justly deserving God's judgment, then we need a far bigger solution. And what we need to see is that Jesus is that solution. He is the humble and compassionate king who comes to his wayward and rebel people, who ultimately gives up his life so that we might be forgiven and have hope and a future. He doesn't leave us alone, but rather becomes one of us, enters in so that we ourselves might have new life. That's what it means to see Jesus as the true king. He is indeed the one who has power and authority, but the one who wields it with gentleness and mercy, with a deep desire to bring freedom, hope, new life, and peace. So this morning, wherever you are, if you're wondering, can I trust Jesus? The answer from this text is yes, you can. If you're wondering who is Jesus, you can know that he is the God who loves you, and the king who deeply desires to welcome you into his kingdom of new life this morning. That's the gift that he gave to the people who first knew him. It's a gift that he offers to us today. And it's in light of that gift that I think it's only appropriate to respond to him in a time of prayer. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you don't stand far off, nor do you come as a king to judge us. But your deepest desire is that we might know you for who you are. As the God who, yes, indeed, does wield all authority, but wields it with gentleness in order to forgive and to show grace to people who have rejected you for other false kings, who've enthroned selfish desires on our hearts. Lord, we thank you that through you, through your life, your death, your resurrection, that we have hope that we have new life, that we have forgiveness and a fresh start. Lord, may that hope carry us as we look forward to the day when you will come once more in glory and make all things new. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.